Claire Daverley, how are you doing, lovely? Welcome to the show. The acquisition and the story of Talking at Night felt very quick. It was years and years of trying and failing. The first piece of advice any writer will give you is stay clear of reviews. The one cutting review will not only ruin my day, but it will take me down. Obviously, your emotional fingerprints are all over anything you write, but none of it is autobiographical. And I think that's a thing that a lot of people assume, especially with women writers, I've noticed. My core fear, I genuinely feel like one day I'm gonna wake up and I won't know how to write. And that is what gets me at my desk every day because it's like, well, if I can just write a few sentences and prove to myself that this is still a muscle I can flex. Welcome to Inspired By, the show that brings you inspiring stories from inspiring entrepreneurs with a twist. Now, I believe that every successful entrepreneur and celebrity on this planet has an inspiring story and they have stories that they haven't yet told. Not because they don't want to tell the story, but because they haven't been asked the right questions. So my job on the show is to ask the real questions so that you get the real answers. Now, with that in mind, let's get started. Daverly, how are you doing? Lovely. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's so lovely to be here. Do you know what? I feel a bit, it feels quite strange being sat here with you. And I'll be honest why, because last time I saw you, you were sat being interviewed in a similar setup, let's be honest, but it wasn't quite me interviewing you. We were being interviewed by the incredible Fan Cotton. So I've got big shoes to fill with you being sat here. So thank you for coming. <laughs> oh no, thank you so much. It was a very surreal day, but it was one of the wonderful things about it was I met you at the end of the day. So yeah. it's really nice to be here off the back of that. Yeah. And proof of what happens when you start networking, you start chatting to people and connecting with people. Now, Claire, obviously I know all the incredible things that you have done and many of our readers and viewers will know that you are, let's be honest, a very inspiring author, someone that has very recently been picked up by Penguin to publish your book, which is now in, I believe, 24 languages. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, 24 territories. I'm quite wow. as amazed as like your face is looking like, that's astonishing. I'm like, I don't believe that this is me. It's kind of crazy that that has happened. Wow. And so tell us a little bit about what was the journey that got you to this point? Obviously, you're a writer now, fiction book. What started you on your writing journey? Well, it's great we've got an hour because that is a, it's a long answer, very <laughs> long answer. Um, I always wanted to be a writer. There was nothing else I ever wanted to do. Um, actually, that's a lie because when you're a kid, obviously you think about lots of different things. I thought maybe I'd be a teacher, mm. maybe an artist. There was a point at which I wanted to be a clown because I liked making up stories that made people laugh. Um, but it was always about the writing. It was kind of what I did for fun when I was younger. Um, and I used to get like those like, sort of comics and magazines. My nan used to buy me like Girl Talk and Twinkle. And there would be like posters where you could pull out different pictures of crazy things like Labradors in laundry baskets. And they would just spark ideas and I would go away and scribble stories. So it's been something that I always wanted to do. Um, and I wrote throughout childhood and when I was a teenager as well. And throughout university, but I never really felt like it was a viable career, I suppose, mm -hmm. because obviously it's so hard. It's so hard to get picked up and noticed. And it's really hard to sort of believe that you're good enough to make it. Mm. Um, sorry, I feel like I'm <laughs> got a bit of a cold and I feel like I'm Don't worry, just, no, it's fine. <laughs> um, right. Okay, let's start again. Is this all right? Yeah, yeah. We can edit it all time. out. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I never really felt like it was an actual viable career, even though I loved doing it. So I always felt like 
best plan B was to work with books in another way. So I worked in publishing um, for six years after I graduated and I was just writing on the side really for fun. Um, I used to get up really early in the morning before work, sort of we're talking 5.30, 6 a.m., get my words down and just go to work and do my usual digital marketing job um, in publishing sort of nine till five before coming home and then trying to write a book that I'd really want to read. So that's where I started really was just trying and enjoying and failing a lot. I wrote um, actually two novels before Talking at Night got any notice. So it was a a long slog um, Mm. for a long time, but I, I say slog. I loved doing it. And I think when it when it got difficult and whenever I felt as though the rejections, which there were many, felt sort of crippling, you allow yourself to wallow, you allow yourself to lick your wounds, but then you have that compulsion to keep writing anyway. So that was how I kind of knew I'll just be writing until my dying day, even if I never get noticed or published. And that was really freeing. So... Yeah, I was just, I just did it because I loved doing it. But there was obviously always that hope that maybe one day someone might want to read what it was that I was writing. Mm. That must be such an interesting experience because, you know, you're kind of, if I can put words in your mouth and summarize for what I think a lot of our audience will experience too, is like that compromise. It's like, my dream is maybe not feasible. So I'm going to compromise to do some part of it. So for example, for you, it was the real love for writing the mornings and the evenings and then the day job while still in the publishing space. Yes. How was it for you being in the publishing space? So you're so close to what you really want to do, but you're doing it for somebody else's books or someone else's story. Yeah, such a good question. And you know what? I'll be honest. I didn't really think about it that much. I kept it very separate. So my career as sort of a marketing manager was very separate, um, very practical, you know, paid the bills, came with its own highs and lows and stresses. I had brilliant friends at work and the writing was so private. And it was something that I also felt like was potentially never gonna go anywhere. So I didn't tell really anybody. I had a few close friends, both at work and outside of work who maybe knew about it. But it was something that I kept very close to my chest for, you know, many reasons, one of which being the sort of fear that it would never go anywhere. And you never want those questions of, how's the book writing going? And have you, have you gone anywhere with it? Which are you know, going to come if people know, as I'm sure you, you get that sort of stuff all the time. And so it was always like compartmentalizing. And at work, I worked in the sort of digital marketing space. So I was doing the emails and social media, managing the sort of Twitter and Instagram and Facebook accounts for a publisher. So I wasn't actually that aligned to the physical publishing process. Mm. I never sat in on acquisition meetings, which was actually, I think on reflection, a really positive thing. Because I think if I'd have been really close to the process, you'd have A, been so close to knowing how many hoops you had to jump through. So not only did you need an agent and then an editor who liked you, the editor then has to take you to a meeting with their whole department marketing, publicity, sales, the MD, uh, writes and convince them that this book will sell and is worth them acquiring. And at all those points, it can fail. So I think if I'd have known all those things, it would have been even more scary and maybe shut down the creative process. And there's enough self-doubt with writing anyway, as I'm sure you know too. So I wasn't actually privy to any of that. I only saw 
sort of fully formed books once they were published and I would be talking about them on mm. social media in a very different writing space. So I was writing for my job, essentially. I was a, a copywriter, really. But I loved that because it meant I was just living and breathing stories all the time. But I was very good at sort of not looking at what was being published and thinking, I wish that was me. It was like, that is my day job. Mm. And then I came away and went back to that almost compulsion, that that joy, that very private space that did, in all honesty, feel very, very separate from what I did nine to five. Mm, yeah, I love that. And I think, do you know what the beautiful thing though, Claire, which I can see from how you describe it and also your energy from even before when we were off camera, yeah. is your positivity to it. Mm. Because I can imagine, and I'm not pointing at anyone in particular, and then loads of listeners and viewers will be thinking the same thing. Yeah. There is an, a neg an element of negativity that could be felt in that situation. Why not me? Even though you're not the one doing the books, mm. you're still constantly around or hearing about authors or hearing about stories and so on. And so I think it's a real honesty within you to be, to be positive and still think, actually, I'm still grateful to be surrounded by that. And obviously that was probably also helped you carry on with your writing. So you mentioned there that you had two novels first, which I love because I didn't know that about you. And I think a lot of people, I'm just going to take the take the veil off, if you will, yeah. lift the veil. A lot of people will be thinking, oh, it's all easy for Claire because she's now, you know, talking at night is, is amazingly successful and she's mm -hmm. published by Penguin. But I think it's really reassuring and nice to be honest with the fact that it wasn't necessarily your first book and there were two novels before that. So tell us a bit about that experience. Oh my gosh, absolutely. This was, so the, the acquisition and the story of talking at night felt very quick and like a whirlwind, which I'm sure we will kind of get into, but mm. it was years and years of trying and failing to write a, a, a novel that would get published. So as I said, I spent years just writing for fun. Um, and when I get in a rut or I get stuck or I got rejections, I tried to sort of go back to that childhood, just love and joy when you're you don't have a reader. You don't have anyone looking over your shoulder. You're not worrying if you're good enough. You are just writing because you love telling stories. Mm. And I think as an adult, you lose that. And that is really hard because of course all the voices come in about whether it's good enough, interesting enough, whether it's ever going to get you anywhere and all of those things, which are sort of demons that I think every writer struggles with, no matter whether they're published or not. Um, I'm so sorry, I forgot the question. <laughs> So what was it like having the two novels first? Thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all these cameras, it's like, oh, what, where is my oh, brain going? So, cool. um, so I was writing throughout university. I actually studied art, which is a bit of a weird one, but I was, a lots of people, I knew I wanted to be a writer. So the fact that I went to art school was kind of an interesting decision. Um, but I think I felt lots of writers go and study English, which was my was sort of the obvious choice, um, which I loved English as well. But I felt like I wanted to explore creativity in a slightly different way. Now, I just wanted to quickly interrupt this episode to share a quick message with you. Now, I've been hosting these interviews with Inspired by Show for a while now, and I've been loving all of the great feedback from our listeners. And it really means a lot when you all share from listening to these episodes, watching these episodes, share your incredible feedback. And I love that you love it as much as we do. Now, my mission for the Inspired by Show is to inspire others to challenge the norm, share their story, knowing that it's okay to be vulnerable and, shock horror, take the mask off and be raw and real. So I have a favor to ask. 
can you help me on this mission by sharing this episode with someone who you think needs to hear this message? Maybe there's a friend, a loved one, a colleague, or someone that you know that would really benefit from hearing this inspiring story. If you could do that to help us help even more people to challenge the norm and push themselves out of their own comfort zone, then I'd really appreciate it. So if you haven't already, share this episode with a friend, a loved one, a colleague, or someone that you know would benefit. Now, back to the episode. And how interesting that might be, might be and what a different edge it might give me. So I was making lots of practical artwork about words, about language, about narrative um, whilst at art school. And I just had these incredible tutors who noticed that I was, you know, very much a writer essentially. And I, I wasn't sort of secret about it, but I had this one tutor in particular called Brian Catling who really sadly passed away just last year um, before he could see that he was in the acknowledgements of talking at night as well, which was really heartbreaking. But um, I remember him saying to me, I don't want you working for a publishing house. I want you being published, which was just such an incredible thing to hear as a kind of, you know, young 20 something secretly writing books and having them like under the desk and he'd, he'd noticed and that was the first time I really thought maybe I need to give this a bit more focus than just, I love doing it. I'm going to do it for fun. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course you have to pay the bills. I had to be realistic. I couldn't just leave art school and suddenly be writing novels and hoping that they got picked up. And even if they do get, get picked up, you know, you don't earn hundreds of thousands of pounds being a writer. So I, took his advice and I started writing full sort of proper novels immediately after I graduated. And so there were two books, as I said, that I was working on around sort of my, my full-time jobs. The first one was so long. I look back at it now. I think it was something like 140,000 words. <gasps> And you don't get told this stuff until you start genuinely looking into it. But most publishers won't pick up, well, a, a debut novel that's anything more than sort of 100,000, mm -hmm. um, 80 to 100,000. I didn't know that. I'd never done any research. All I was doing was blindly writing and, you know, enjoying myself and hoping for the best. And I sent it out to several agents once it was finished and once I'd edited it and once I thought I was happy with it. And... A few months of sort of general rejections, but they were nice rejections, which was a really positive thing. Um, they sort of didn't, they weren't general and they weren't just go back to your day job. They had these glimmers of, you know, what you've submitted is stronger than more than what we see, but it's not for us this time around. So it was just that little bit of something that meant I kept going. Mm. And I think after about six months, a year of querying to agents, for those who don't know, you send out basically a, an email to agents with a sort of synopsis of your book, 10,000 words of the beginning. And then if they like it, they call in the full manuscript. And I can still remember the first time that happened with that first novel. I was sat on the sofa with my partner and it was just the most, one of the, still one of the most exciting things that happened as a writer, because it was like, it'd just been constant rejection. So to get someone email you personally and address you and say, I can still remember what she said about it. And that it was, it was weirdly relatable to her own experience and that it was strange reading. So she would love to read the full thing. And that felt so exciting, like mm -hmm. such a 
And I think as a writer, it's so vital to celebrate the small wins because you get so many knockbacks. So that was very exciting. But as I've said, it was sort of six months of back and forth with this poor agent who basically realized this is such a long winding novel. And she did say to me, it's too long, edit it down, which I did. I think I cut about 30,000 words and it still wasn't right for her. So that felt that was a really hard moment of being like, I thought I was close, but no cigar. Oh. And it was at that point that I thought I've spent years working on this book and I just feel like it's time to write something new. So with love, I put it in a drawer, began my second novel. Um, and it was at that point, I was still getting more rejections from other agents and again, still positive ones. And I just felt at that point, I'd started on down a road of trying to take it more seriously. I was going to lots of events, hearing authors speak, hearing agents speak. I was learning how to broach agents. And I was also learning that I wanted to learn about the craft. And I just, I never had, you know, I was a voracious reader. I loved reading. I loved writing, but there was a part of me that really wanted to go and do a creative writing master's, but realistically I couldn't afford to take the time out of work. And also obviously financially, it's a huge, mm -hmm. a huge undertaking. And I was going to lots of free kind of writing workshops and there was just nothing else that lit me up in that same way. Wow. And I can remember vividly going to a literary festival, which back then was called the Emerald Street Literary Festival. It was the stylist book festival that they put on every year. It was fabulous. And you booked in for these sort of salons or various talks and the Faber Academy were putting on a free workshop. And it was a game changing workshop for me. Wow. And I remember thinking, I need to I need to put my time and sort of energy and money into learning about writing because I felt like I'd given it my best shot with passion and my love of books and it just wasn't quite enough um and I remember approaching the head of Faber Academy Richard Skinner who took the workshop at the end of the day and saying to him this course sounds amazing like but I work full-time and am I able to fit it around full-time work? And he said, oh yes, it's designed um, for people in work. So I was so excited. I left the festival with like a spring in my step and I rem remember phoning my husband and being like, I'm gonna apply for the Faber Academy. It's gonna be great. And then I got home and saw that it was, you know, it's still 4,000 pounds because it's essentially a, a master's course in half the time. And I can just remember my heart sinking because I was, you know, a young professional on a publishing sort of assistant wage. So I went away and I saved up for sort of three years, um, applied, thankfully got a place. And I was still writing my second novel whilst I was at Faber. And I finished the Faber course with that novel finished. And off the back of that was when four agents were interested in that book. So again, it was another stepping stone mm -hmm. off an opportunity. Um, and I yet again had that same excitement and that same rejection. So four agents reaching out, wanting to read the full story and then all coming back saying, I really loved your writing, but I don't know where this would sit in the market. I don't know how I would sell it. Please get in touch again in the future. So it was just this 
I kept feeling as though I was getting closer and closer and closer, but it was, I know you say that I talk about it with joy and positivity, which is so lovely because I, I hope that that comes across, but there were a lot of moments where you feel crushed and like you just can't continue. It's like, take it's a long project writing a novel yeah. and it's, you stick with it day in, day out. And to then again, feel as though it was going nowhere. I had really sort of tough weeks of thinking, why do I bother? What am I doing? Maybe I should just can this. And I now look back on it. I'm like, well, every word that I wrote for those two novels got me to talking at night. I wouldn't have written talking at night without learning from those two books, how to write a novel, how not to write a novel. It made me a much better editor doing that Faber course. I was much more ruthless with myself. Um, and it was actually off the back of one of those agents who reached out to me for that second novel. She actually phoned me up instead of emailing me, which again was such a big moment because I'd only ever had email rejections. Mm -hmm. And uh, her name was Ariella Finer. She is now my literary agent. And we had a good constructive hour long conversation where she really took the time to sort of say to me, I'm so, and she even said, she was like, I don't know whether I should say this to you, but I've been agonizing over whether to offer you representation for this novel. She was like, I love it, but it doesn't really know what it is. And it's too quiet. And that's the feedback I continued to get about my writing, too quiet, which for those not in the sort of publishing arena means not enough happens. You know, a lot of my books are, or what I like to write, slow burns, character studies. A lot of my favorite published novels are quiet novels, but in the industry, it can be seen as a very negative term. Mm. Um, and all throughout school, it was always the feedback I got, Claire's too quiet. She doesn't say enough. She needs to put her hand up more. And there was just a part of me that thought, why are we always told to be extroverted and loud? And why is that the only way to get ahead? So I didn't change while I was at school and I decided I'm not going to change how I write, but I do need to listen in, in some sort of strategic way. And she was so brilliant at saying to me, you know, you can either rework this novel that I love and you make it louder, give it some splashier sort of content, or I'd love to hear what you're writing next. And I was like, well, I'm writing a love story. <laughs> which was talking at night and talking at night had been percolating for probably about six years. So I do think there's something in writing what needs to be written at the right time. There was a reason that talking at night, I hadn't started writing that six years before. I needed to go through book one and two to be a better writer, to understand the craft better. So I pitched her what I was writing and she said, okay, you know, send me 50 pages of that when it's ready, but it has to be absolutely perfect. Um, you can't go rushing it and just sending it to me. Like this is a, an opportunity. And I, I remember my- No pressure much. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Like, no like, pressure. Oh. But my husband was so great. He was like, does she know who she's talking to? Cause I'm like a terrible perfectionist. The point of, I could just sit on a novel forever and do nothing <laughs> with it. Um, so I finished those 50 pages and they were the opening 50 pages of Talking at Night and she signed me that day. And it was just 
it was uh, it was an amazing an amazing phone call <laughs> oh my gosh I just got shivers as you were saying yeah. that Claire that it's just such a yeah. such a beautiful story and I think there's so much raw and rawness and honesty to that so thank you for sharing that of because course. I think a lot of people want to come on and talk about how successful they are or what they've done really well and I think the honesty between what, what we've spoken about on camera and off camera yeah. is that you know it's not always as straightforward as people think and mm. The fact that you're, you know, you went on the journey, even your commitment and consistency. I mean, I'm in the entrepreneurship space. I could not imagine most people waiting three years to save for something to learn a skill. Mm -hmm. Most people are like, oh, it didn't work for six months. I'm going to give it in. It's not, it's not worth it. You know, mm -hmm. what do you think was the difference for you actually then going on to create a third book? Because I can imagine there are so many authors, fiction and nonfiction, that just give up like, God, I've tried twice now. I've done this course. It's not worked. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not for me. I think we've talked before about there was that almost compulsion to do it. So mm -hmm. I kind of knew even if I continued to get rejections as painful and as sort of, you know, defeating as that felt, I might lick my wounds for a couple of weeks and then that urge to keep writing would sort of kick in again. So it was almost like there was no choice in that respect. Mm. But also through going to so many author events, listening to a lot of writing podcasts, reading about writing. So I in no way sort of endorse going and spending thousands of pounds on a writing course if you don't feel it's right for you. Nobody should get into debt to do a writing course. And it just, it felt right for me. And I'm so glad that I did it. I don't feel like Faber made me a better writer, but it definitely made me a better editor. So I had, I felt like I had my voice just through exploring and writing for many years, but it taught me to be more strategic, more ruthless, and also more aware of how many times you had to just pick yourself up. And I remember, so Richard Skinner, the tutor who I met at that festival, who then ended up being my tutor at the Faber Academy. I remember him saying to me, that is what writing is. It's getting knocked down. It's dusting yourself up. It's getting up and trying again. It is graft and it is grit. It isn't necessarily talent and skill. It is just, you learn and you keep going. And if you love writing, you will keep going. If you get beaten down and bored and fed up, you probably shouldn't be a writer and that's mm -hmm. fair play. You're probably gonna be much happier. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But there was something about just, giving up just wasn't an option. Mm, wow. Mm. And it proven by the fact you're sat here with that incredible book. Oh, sat right you. next to you, you thank know, you. A, a, lab a labor of love as, as some may call it. It really was. And Claire, you've, so you've gone through this experience, you know, you've got this phone call. You're now thinking possibly this is a dream come true. What was then the thought process? What was going through your mind at that time? And what was the thought process to then being signed by Penguin and the, you know, the journey and trajectory you're on now? Yeah. So, Ariella phoned me, I remember after these 50 pages and said to me, I, I can't, we're not, we're not going to do small talk. I'm going to get straight to the point. I'm so excited. I love this book. What you've done in 50 pages is just so exciting to me. And I can just remember it was almost like the world slowed down because it was like, those were the words I'd been hoping for that one person might see some merit in what I'd been writing. But of course it was only 50 pages. So I had to go off and finish the thing. <laughs> Um, which for a moment I did feel as though, is that going to be too much pressure? Mm. I think it could have been, but actually it was just incredibly motivating. So 
I went away and I finished talking at night in nine months, which was relatively quick considering I was doing it around sort of my full-time job. Um, and then Ariella's very sort of hands-on. So we did a few edits together once the manuscript was finished. Um, but still relatively light touch, which was just such a joy because I'd been working alone for so long. It was great to have a dialogue with mm -hmm. someone. Um, so I think it was about January time. I'd finished her edits and she had received it and said to me, Claire, I have COVID. So it's going to be a long time before I can actually read this. And, we, you know, we do perhaps another round of edits. So I sort of put it from my mind. Okay, get better, rest up, etc. It was a Sunday night, nine o'clock at night, and my phone rings and it's Ariella. And I thought, that's why is she ringing me late on a Sunday when she has COVID? And I answered the phone and she said, Claire, this book is ready. And I, I thought, you're, I, Ariella, I didn't think you were well enough. And she said, well, I'm not well enough to sit and go through edits and things, but I've just sat and read it start to finish and it is there. And I know this sounds crazy, but we either get it out now in time for the London Book Fair or we wait for after the book fair, which was in May, I think, which just seems bonkers to wait that long. So we need to send it tomorrow. It's going to go on submission tomorrow. And we'd agreed that my name wouldn't be on it because I worked in publishing and I didn't want any sort of leg up. I didn't want to get picked up because people knew who I was or I didn't want a favor. I kind of felt like if this is going to happen after so many years of trying and grafting, I want it to be because of the writing. I don't want it to be because somebody maybe knows who I am. So Ariella reluctantly agreed to that because I think she felt like it might help our cause if yeah. uh, people knew who I was. But I was quite adamant that I wanted it out without my name on. And I'm a realist. Once a book is out on submission, it can take weeks to hear anything back. I'm sure it might be the same in the nonfiction space. Yeah. Um, so the next day there was this sort of wild fever dream of I was logged on because obviously we were in the thick of sort of lockdown at this point. Um, so we're all working from home. So I was logged on doing my usual nine to five stuff. And then Ariella was phoning me every so often, can you just tweet that sentence? Maybe we just need to change this. And it was kind of this wild thing of editing and working. And then three o'clock on the dot on the Monday, we sent it out and she sent it to, you know, all the sort of top publishers. And it was then just a waiting game. But by six o'clock that evening, so three hours later, we were getting emails from editors saying that they were reading and really enjoying it, which was super exciting. But again, I wouldn't let myself go there. It was kind of like, okay, I'm a realist. I've been knocked back several times. This seems to be going a little bit too well. I'm just going to wait and see what happens. And then the next morning, I was at the gym, actually. And I came out and I had all these missed calls from Ariella and I can still distinctly remember walking home and phoning her up and just being like, you know, is everything okay? And she just said, I've never seen a reaction like this to a debut and we're, I'm, you know, pretty certain we're gonna sell this book today. And I just cried. I just started crying in the middle of the street. Um, and that was when 
it was honestly the most surreal week of my life. Um, we had a preempt from Penguin Random House about half an hour later. I didn't even know what a preempt was. I worked in publishing and I didn't even know what a preempt was. So obviously the dream is one editor likes your work enough to make an offer. If more than one editor likes it enough to make an offer, you will likely go to auction um, where, you know, the publishers can kind of put their hat in the ring, offer what they would like to on the book and you get a choice. A preempt is that sort of next step of an editor not wanting it to go to auction because they don't want to lose out. So they give you a time sort of limited offer. Um, and Penguin Random House, the publisher that I worked at, made the first preempt. And I just couldn't believe it. It was just the most bizarre, surreal sort of phone call of my life. And Ariella keeps giving me these crazy, surreal phone calls. <laughs> it's her favorite thing to do. Um, and she said, we're not going to take it because there's interest from other publishers. So it was a day of phone calls, offers from all these incredible publishers that I was just overjoyed to hear from. Um, and after a lot of back and forth, in the end, we accepted, I think, what was our seventh preempt from Penguin. And thankfully, they had at this point found out who I was and um, they didn't change their minds. <laughs> it was, yeah, a really mad time. And actually, even telling you the story now, it's like 18 months on, I still feel as though I'm talking about somebody else. Mm. And I think that's the element of, A, you know, working for so long towards something I never really thought could happen. And then B, the complete magic of going from like being an employee at this company to suddenly being one of their authors, like literally overnight. It was so bizarre. It still is very bizarre. Yeah. And you're not just one of their authors, you know, you, you had that offer so quickly. You've then gone on. I mean, I even see it. We were talking and joking about, you know, you walk through the airport and your books on the shelves in <laughs> yeah. there and you know, you've in all these different countries and languages. I mean, does it feel real? It really doesn't. And actually I've spoken to a lot of other writers about that and I, they feel the same. I think it's a self-preservation thing. There's an element of kind of fearing that it could all be taken away or it'll flop, a bit of imposter syndrome, I think. Um, and just knowing there's so many books out there. So even though you, you know, you're published and one of your childhood dreams has come true, it's then like, well, what next? And what if the bad reviews start pouring in and all of that sort of scary noise that you have to deal with day in, day out. But then at the same time, there's, this is just so huge. It's so unbelievable to me that 24 countries have bought it. And even actually in that mad whirlwind week, TV companies started approaching. And that was another bizarre moment where I was sort of getting these offers pouring in from different countries. And then I had an email from apparently my film and TV rights agent. I didn't even know that I had one at this point. <laughs> saying, uh, what are your priorities for film or TV? And I just remember laughing and thinking, I don't have any priorities. My priority was to get through the day without, you know, melting into a puddle of joy and excitement and stress, let alone being asked about this. So I ended up having sort of five meetings with different production companies as well. And it doesn't feel real. None of that mm. feels real um, and still doesn't. So I'm just trying to enjoy every moment mm. and yeah just 
keeping very grounded about it, I think. Yeah. There was a moment when my husband said, how do we celebrate this? Should we get a takeaway? <laughs> and I was like, no, we've got noodles that need eating in the fridge. So no, let's let's get through the fresh food. <laughs> it's like a moment back to reality. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's good though. It's good to have these moments of like grounding or being humble because I think sometimes we can just get away with it and you kind of lose what I've seen a lot of people I've interviewed and what I've seen in my time in the industry in, in lots of different spaces, whether it's authors, speakers, podcasters, mm. kind of lose your original essence when you just kind of go down that path. And it's really nice. Like when I met you, it's just so nice to have a chat with you yeah. and, you know, just have a bit of a gossip, bit of a laugh. And it's just, yeah. it's nice to still remember, you know, where our passions were. And it's still fairly fresh for you. Very much so. How have you found this, you know, I can relate to this. Obviously, I'm not a fiction writer at all. Mm -hmm. I've done a lot of nonfiction with my publishing business, mm -hmm. but I'm really curious from your perspective because it's talking at night that's got the attention, yet you're there sitting here having to tell, you know, essentially Will and Rosie's story mm -hmm. and getting people to fall in love with you and them. How have you <laughs> found that new, almost like personal brand side that arguably you maybe did when you were working with Penguin with the marketing side. Yeah, it's it's really strange. I was actually talking to an old friend about this or an old colleague who's a friend yesterday. You're not prepped for any of that. Um, and I kind of naively thought maybe you might get some media training or I, I don't know, like a little bit of education about it, but you're sort of not. It's just like, off you go. If people love your book, then you can talk about it, which is obviously true because you do you know it better than anything and anyone, which it's different to sort of standing up and giving a marketing presentation, which I used to fear, I used to hate doing, you know, I've had hypnosis for public speaking in the past. It was, it was a real thing for me for many, many years. So to then suddenly be here talking to you or to be on stage with Fern Cotton at Happy Place, a huge jump from, you know, sitting behind my screen, doing emails and writing my manuscript. So it has been an adjustment, but one that again, I just feel so lucky to to be sitting here and, and having these conversations because, you know, two years ago, I wouldn't have believed any of this. But also there are a lot of writers out there who don't, you know, they publish a book and it maybe goes under the radar and that's really heartbreaking. So at the same time, if ever I feel stressed or overwhelmed, I think actually, how incredibly wonderful that I have this opportunity and that people want to hear about talking at night. Um, I will never take it for granted. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And I can't wait to see how how much further it goes and, you know, who knows what comes next with mm -hmm. talking at night. Thank you. What would you say is kind of your next step, Claire, for you? You know, you've, you've had this dream come true. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had that moment where you're like, what now? Or have you got other visions, other plans? The plan has always been to just keep writing. You know, this was an amazing thing to happen. It was far more successful than I ever anticipated. But being a writer for me is a career choice. It's mm. a vocation. I don't wanna just write one novel, tick, done, new dream. The dream is to just keep doing it. Um, so I'm writing my next novel. It was actually a two book deal. So I am under contract with Penguin to deliver another, another book. Um, and obviously the hardback's out at the moment, but the paperback will be next year. Um, so there will hopefully be an exciting sort of publicity journey with that as well. Um, but it's always just about writing the best story that I can, improving as a writer, because, oh my gosh, I'm sure there's so much more to learn. I know there will be. Um, and I don't want to just emulate, you know, 
another talking at night. It's mm. it's always about writing the best book you have to offer at the, that time. Mm. Um, so yeah, my plan is to just keep going and keep learning and keep trying to be a long-term writer. <laughs> oh, fantastic. And you, you talked there about, you know, being, writing the best book that you can. And yeah. how have you found the sort of other side of that where people are maybe, you know, for the fact that the being the best book is subjective, mm -hmm. as I'm sure you've experienced with, with talking like, with the rejection from the other yeah. agents of the other novels. Yeah. How have you navigated this sort of other people's opinions, whether they are established people in the industry? Also, a lot of opinions we experience are not from established people, uh -huh. not in the industry. Uh -huh. How have you navigated that journey? So I think the fact that I had listened to a lot of writing podcasts, been to a lot of talks, um, read a lot about mm. Um, this sort of process I was quite prepared the first piece of advice any writer will give you is stay clear of reviews and I think a lot of people find that hard and sort of go down a, a, a hole on like the Amazon reviews or something and I don't find it hard to stay away because I know myself and I know that even if there's all this lovely positive noise the one cutting review will not only ruin my day but it will take me down and I will spend days trying to recover, days if I'm lucky. I know myself. And so I have tried to stay away from all of that. So I don't read reviews as a rule. Um, it's really hard when people tag you actively in them online. Um, so there's, you know, there's some of it you can't escape, but generally it's always coming back to your center. And also knowing that, and I, I think about myself as a reader as well, not just a writer. There are so many books that people love that I don't quite get the magic or the feels for. And equally, there will be a book that literally has rocked my world and I'll give it to someone and they just don't feel the same. So that sort of normality of being like, you're never going to write something that amazes everybody. And that's actually a good thing. That's okay. It's just about taste. You know, we wouldn't hate on each other for enjoying different flavors of ice cream. It's totally the same with novel writing. So again, coming back to that sort of grounded reality really helps. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And you know, similar, obviously podcast reviews, my book reviews, and mine's about my actual like education, my knowledge, my experience. So personal, yeah. And you know, people always say to me, oh, but I've tagged you in the positive ones, but it's one of those things. I don't know if you can relate to this. You're scrolling and you see the positive, but you can't help. You, it's not possible to go, I'm only going to read this little bit. Your eyes always go to the next. Always. It's like when you go, I'm going to check my emails, but I'm not going to read everything. Always. You always pick it, don't we? Yeah. We, ha we end up seeing it. And I think yeah. it's so hard. So sometimes it is nice for people to tag us in the lovely things, but realistically, yes. we'll always find always find them. Absolutely. And I also, I, I interestingly heard once that like even good reviews can be sort of unhelpful because they can be distracting. And again, a lot of readers, which has been one of the best things about this journey. It's been incredible that people who don't even know me are reaching out and telling me how much they love the book, how it moved them, you know, really personal things they sort of tell you. And what an honor that people want to reach out to you and tell you that stuff that's been amazing but at the same time you sort of think I don't want to disappoint them if the next book isn't as good or do they just want to see more of Will and Rosie when I have no sort of intention of you know writing a sequel or whatever and all of that can get in from the good reviews as well so it's kind of like eyes on the prize which is just writing a new project and yeah. all the the reviews as wonderful or as special as they are or 
may not, as the case may be. Um, it's just better to stay away from them for my own sanity, really. Yeah. yeah. And you know what? I can really relate to that when it comes to business as well, because mm. I remember when I would like, you know, you'd have a really great month business or like I'd launch a new service, like a new coaching yeah. program. And then suddenly I'd be like, what if I can't do that again? You know, and, and I guess it's probably quite similar to writing a whole new book, because if you're doing a sequel, people already love the characters. So of course they're going to want to find out what happens with Will and Rosie. Yeah. Does this happen? To, and I'm not going to ruin the story for anyone who hasn't listened, <laughs> but you know, or watched it. But there's there's a lot of it. Like I love listening to the book. So I, I could feel when I was listening to the narrator listening, the way the story turns. And I can imagine people wanting to carry on that. Mm. So when you come with a new book, you know, I, I can't even imagine the comparison of the, will I still get it in the same way? Will I still be able to bring them in? Will will these characters be as enticing and engaging? Yeah, it's so funny what you just said, like literally brought up my core fear, which I'm sure is any sort of, not just writer's fear, but you know, creative person's fear is like, I genuinely feel like one day I'm going to wake up and I won't know how to write. And like, it's just left me. The ability to to do it has just gone. And the fear is so real and that is what gets me at my desk every day because it's like, well, if I can just write a few sentences and prove to myself that this is still a muscle I can flex because, yeah, it's really scary when you've had all the love for something. You just want to deliver, not only for your readers and your team. You know, I've got an editor. I've got a, a team of fabulous people at Penguin. I've got my agent who is, you know, fantastic. And all your family and friends now who suddenly are aware that you do this thing that you'd been so secret and private about for so long. People are asking all the time, you know, how's book two, how's book two? And it's kind of like, please, I just need the quiet space because I don't know how book two is going <laughs> until it's done. <laughs> yeah, do you know, it kind of reminds me of, you know, when people, and I'm not nor married nor got kids, so I'm mm. telling other people's stories here, but you know where people get married and at the wedding, it's like, when are you having kids? Oh my it's gosh. like, can't we just enjoy yeah. this moment, please? You've just given birth to this incredible book, which is doing so well. <laughs> Let me just enjoy it and no more pressure, thanks. Because it's almost more pressure right now yeah. with book four than maybe with book three. Yeah, I love that you called it book four and book three yeah. because um, obviously in my contract and everything, the one I'm writing now is referred to as book two. Of but course, it is like, yeah. yeah, there's two others that existed before this so to me it does feel like book four so yeah. thank you for that that no was problem. really funny that's the next question actually would you ever go back to your first and second novels now knowing what you know yeah. the skills you've learned and all that editing skill and also now contacts mm -hmm. is there any part of you that's like let's just get them out the cupboard and just zhuzh them up a bit and get them ready to go um novel one definitely not I don't think Novel two, definitely, potentially. I have a lot of love for it. And I felt like it was a competent novel. Um, so never say never. And that is a thing that happens. So often mm. in the industry, you know, a debut will be the debut, as it were. But actually their fourth or fifth published will actually be the novel they wrote first that didn't quite make it. So I know that that is a possibility, but I, I really feel like it's one of those things that only if it feels right to get it back out again, mm. only if those characters are sort of niggling at me or there's something drawing me to it. And my agent and I discussed it for book, book two slash book four. Mm. Um, she said, you know, do you want to get out the novel that I read and loved and should we rework that? And I sort of thought about it. And I thought, I don't feel excited about it. I feel like I've moved on I feel like talking at night has sort of upped the game for me and I'm excited to write something new but that's not to say that I do still think about that that mm. novel 
So maybe, just like Talking at Night was almost waiting in the wings for the right time, maybe that other book will sort of come out of the shadow at yeah. some point who knows who can say yeah I love that I, I can't wait to hear how that all goes especially Thank with you. whichever book becomes your second book with Penguin mm -hmm. where do you get your inspiration from Claire and obviously I know there is some similarities in some of the characters particularly uh, Rosie when we spoke about your book the first time mm -hmm. um does the inspiration come from you in terms of your own personal stories do you find some of it weaves in or friends or is it just completely blank piece of paper and created from scratch for me, it's I'm, I'm not really ideas driven. I'm not like a plot or a hook driven person, probably coming back to that quiet sort of nature of the things I love to read and write. But it always starts with perhaps an atmosphere or a voice of a character. So for Talking at Night specifically, it was the voices of Will and Rosie. I sort of was listening to these two characters before I was really thinking about them. You know, things would come up conversations between them would come up and I would just scribble them down and sort of think, okay, that is trying to become something and I'll get to it later. Um, so it's almost like this thread. It's like a thread that starts pulling mm -hmm. or I start pulling at, and then it sort of takes shape in the background if I give it space to do that. So it's a really hard thing to answer. I don't have ideas mm -hmm. that hit me like a, the bolt out of the blue sort of thing. Mm. It is just, I do a lot of observing, a lot of listening, um, and just these characters. And I just think this urge to sort of tell stories just comes out of the woodwork. Um, and obviously your emotional fingerprints are all over anything you write, but none of it is autobiographical. Mm. Um, and I think that's a thing that a lot of people assume, especially with women writers I've noticed, um, a lot of people make the assumption, oh, Rosie must be you or, oh, I mean, my husband's thrilled that he he likes to pretend that Will is based on him, <laughs> which he totally isn't. He's completely fictional. Um, but, you know, it's 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 a job. You tell stories. Mm -hmm. So there are elements. There's certain things. For example, uh, it's quite funny. There's like a broken oven in the book mm -hmm. where the ignition just keeps clicking. And uh, my old oven used to do that. And it was just a fun detail that kind of ended up in the story. And then once I was having a phone call with Ariella and she was like, oh, there's something wrong with my phone. Like, it's just making this crazy noise. I can't really hear you. And I was like, oh, no, that's the, the oven. And she was like, you actually have the clicking oven in the book. I was like, yes, yes, I do. So <laughs> there's certain things that come in, but I never sort of um, draw on friends or family or mm. anything like that for for the story it all just sort of comes of its own of its own accord mm, yeah and I was going to ask you about this emotional fingerprints side of things because when we first spoke that was one of the things that you said that you you know you notice about the book when you're mm. when you're reading it again it's like little little similarities of like maybe challenges they faced mm. are similar you're like well it's not the same as me but it's similar mm. How have you found that going on your journey now with, you know, people critiquing the characters or possibly critiquing your writing style? Have you found that's become more embedded in your writing journey? Hmm. It's, again, one of those things that it's almost like if people say something negative about the characters and I, what I'm finding is actually, while there seems to be a lot of love, which is wonderful, um, Rosie gets quite a lot of criticism as opposed to anybody else mm. 
And that to me is so interesting because on one level it feels like someone's insulting your child. That's <laughs> what like, I was going to ask don't do actually. It. Please yeah. just don't do it. Yeah. But obviously people, it's, it's great that people are having a discourse and a debate and that's all really good stuff. But it's been interesting to me to sort of witness as a writer, I feel like these two characters are extremely balanced. I feel like they both have their flaws. They're both damaged. They both make bad decisions. They both mess the other around in their own sort of, you know, kind hearted way, because they're not bad people. Um, and yet Will gets off scot-free because he's this good looking broken guy that everybody, you know, adores. And Rosie is held to these different standards of, oh, I get a lot of wanted to shake Rosie or throw the book out the window at this point when she made this decision. And that to me is so telling because the whole point on in Rosie's journey, and again, no spoilers for anyone that hasn't read the book, she holds herself to these incredibly kind of painstaking standards that causes her so much anxiety and stress and is actually, I think, very um, sort of representative of women in general mm -hmm. and the standards we are held to. If we're not perfect, we're criticized for not being perfect, but then at the same time, we are criticized if we strive for perfection, which is essentially what Rosie is doing. Mm -hmm. So, and I think I related to that element as a woman, always sort of feeling as though there are rules that we have to live by and buying into that because you get those messages from such a young age. Um, and Rosie is held to those standards, not only by her mother, but herself and she, she believes in those rules and that rigid sort of box ticking mm. way of living her life. Um, and so I think just writing about that felt very natural and quite authentic in a way because I could relate to that stuff, obviously being mm. a woman myself. Um, and then obviously the characters as well go through their own sort of mental health struggles. Um, and that was something that was really close to my heart as well that I, mm. I felt whilst is so much more a part of mainstream conversation, thanks to things like the Happy Place Festival where we mm. met, um, and that's fantastic. But in fiction, whether that's in novels or in films, mental health is still almost exaggerated or spotlit. It's a book about depression. It's a book about a personality disorder. And for me, there's just, there's more to it than that. I feel like mental health is much more nuanced, at least in my own experience um, and from friends and, you know, colleagues that I've spoken to. And I wanted mental health for these two characters to weave through their story, to weave into the texture of the fiction in the way that it weaves through our lives. Mm. Um, so when people are sort of critical of Rosie, when I really feel for her, I really see why she's making the choices she's making. And I hope that the reader can see too. It, it, it's, it's hurtful because you kind of think, oh, poor Rosie, <laughs> but also really understandable and relatable. Yeah, but actually exactly what you shared, I, I just totally agree with you there, Claire, mm. because one, that's how women are portrayed in a lot of the world we mm. are living in today. No offense, most men, typically in that situation, Will and Rosie, men get off scot-free, stereotypically women not so much, mm -hmm. if you think about it in lots of different scenarios. and But I think that my favorite thing about what you've done, exactly as you shared there, is you've weaved the mental health aspects into the book and it's not a major thing. From my own experience, it's not, when I had depression, it's not, yes, okay, it impacted my life, mm -hmm. 
and set me on a trajectory that I'm sat here today as a result of, mm -hmm. but it's not the only thing that happened in my world. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people have to tell their story like that and write books like that. And like you say, it's not that's not how the world is. That's not what our life is like. And also if that's what we think our life is like, it's pretty dark and sad, yeah. isn't it? That we're not seeing the other parts of it as well. Yeah, absolutely. Like you've you've hit the nail on the head. I, I feel like for me, if you have, you know, depression long-term or even just one, one sort of bout of it, or if you suffer from anxiety like Rosie does or whatever it might be that your, your struggle or your wound might be, it doesn't have to define you. It is a part of the story. And I say that obviously with the knowledge that some people, it's, you know, mental health is a sliding scale and you're on one, one end of it, super well and happy and, you know, managing and on the completely other end, it can be extremely severe and you can be, you know, institutionalized. And that is a reality for a lot of people. But generally, day to day, most of us sit somewhere in the middle. We're having good days, we're having bad days. But equally, you can really suffer with something very real, like depression or in the book, you know, OCD is covered or addiction is covered. And I, I like to think, as in the book, as in real life, it's an element of your existence. It's something you have to manage day to day but there is so much more to life at the same time. And I think when we don't sort of think, oh, so-and-so is suffering with X, Y, Z, um, let's hope they can, you know, get better, take some pills and they'll be over the hill. It's kind of like, no, it's, in my experience, it's something that is very much ever-present that we have to be very aware of and talk about, but know that, you know, life, life goes on and there are shades of light and dark. There's hope and there is sorrow and there is love and laughter, and there's also tragedy and grief and difficult things that we all have to go through. Mm. And I wanted that sort of, that texture, I wanted that to be reflected in the book that I was writing. Mm, yeah, it's so, so beautiful, even hearing you talk about it, Claire, because the way, the way you explain it is exactly the way it comes across in the book. And I think similar to that, there's a lot of choice and there's a lot of change that goes through life, which also is in the book mm -hmm. and in our day-to-day -day, day lives. And I think, Claire, one of the biggest things I've taken away from our conversation here is just how you've chosen to be as an author, how you've chosen to talk about the story, but also how, you know, if I can say it, not put words in your mouth, but how you decided to still stay the quiet writer, the way you write mm -hmm. and still prove that you don't always have to change to make it exactly the way everyone thinks you can, which is probably why, again, I don't know the publishers putting words in their mouths and the, and the literary agents, <laughs> why it did so well, because you didn't just try and make it the same way everybody else tells you to do it. You've kept your quiet approach to tell a beautiful story. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I think that's something that's really hard and I still battle with and I'm sure everybody does is like thinking that you have something worthwhile to say. Like I I still feel like, what have I got to say that anybody's gonna be interested in? Like this is, it's almost like the opposite of being quiet. It's like having an ego. It's like really mm. something I don't feel comfortable with, but there's an element of having faith in yourself and the stories that you want to tell. And you're right, I didn't want to sort of write splashy, loud thrillers, which, you know, are great and there is a space for them and there are readers for them and that's brilliant, but I just didn't want to do it. Mm -hmm. And um, it's really lovely that you you have sort of identified mm -hmm. that. I'm still that quiet girl at school who didn't want to put her hand up, mm -hmm. even if she knew the answer, which, you know, I continued to get criticism for. Yeah. But sometimes it's enough to just 
you know, know for yourself and stick to what you want, what you feel is right, which yeah. is sometimes easier said than done. Oh yeah, definitely. And not get swayed with other others others' opinions. But yeah. you're still that in your words, quiet girl at school doesn't want to put your hand up with an incredible book publishing deal <laughs> with an amazing ha- uh, publishing house like Penguin Random House. So it's just, it's been so inspiring, Claire, to hear your story, obviously read the book and um, learn more about you, not only Will and Rosie. So thank you so much for coming all the way here. It's been such a great honor to talk to you today. Oh gosh, thank you. It's been such a pleasure. So, so much fun to have a chat. No problem. Well, we'll definitely have you back for your next sequel slash book, depending on which route you decide to go down. So looking forward to hearing more about it. So guys, I hope you have enjoyed that episode of the Inspired by Show. It has been so amazing to talk to Claire about not only her writing journey, but the reality behind it. I'm hoping you guys got just as much inspirational value as I did there. So Claire, we have a tradition on the show, which you may have seen because I know you've been tuning in some of our episodes, where we ask our current guests to share with us, who do you know that has an inspiring story that you think we should have on the show next? Oh, it's such a hard question. I think I'm going to go for Emma Appleton, who is the actress who read the audiobook of Talking at Night. Um, but we weirdly go way back without even knowing it. So um, I used to volunteer for a gallery in Oxford when I was at university. And she actually was a model in Oxford really early on in her career. And she did an ethical fashion show at this gallery. So our paths crossed many many years ago and she has gone from being a model to obviously an extremely successful actor in things like everything I know about love um, and the witcher and really awesome films now which I can't wait to see and then her first sort of foray into audiobook reading was with talking at night but she's just so inspiring and grounded and wonderful and she's built a career for herself in such a short space of time, which I think is so inspiring Mm. to so many people out there. Just like me wanting to be a writer, she wanted to be an actor and she smashed it. Wow. Oh, thank you so much for that recommendation. And you know what, that was an extra special one for me as well, because I actually listened to Talking at Night I, I'm, this is a really weird confession to make on a podcast, but I love listening to things more than reading, even though I write books and I publish books. Yeah. So I love having the physical copy while I'm listening because it goes in. So the yeah. fact that I've heard her read your book and now you introduce her to the show. So oh, thank perfect. you so much, Claire. Oh, well, what a way to wrap up this incredible interview, guys. I hope you have got as much value out of this interview as I have. Isn't Claire such an inspiring human being? She's amazing. And we will definitely stay tuned for her next book. Now, if you haven't already, you know the drill, share in the comments, what's been the biggest takeaway that you've taken from this interview? What's been the biggest, most inspiring, guest inspiring concept that was shared in this interview? Do let us know. And if you are watching on our YouTube channel and you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the show so you don't miss our next guest. If you are listening on Apple, Spotify, or any other platforms, make sure you also subscribe so you don't miss out on our next inspiring guest. We'll see you next week. (laughs) 